You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, so this is Abraham, and uh, I'll be your host. And it's your co-host, Ryan O. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. And we have a special episode today. Uh, We are privileged to have a guest in the studio with us. His name is Dr. Steve Hayes. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Awesome to be here. And uh, so, Ryan, why don't you give us a little introduction here? Yeah, so I I want you to dive into a little bit about, like, how you got into psychology. Sure. Um, But, so let's maybe let's start there. How, how did you find yourself running into this psychology world? Well, I'm interested in why people do what they do. I, I suppose, you know, most people get into psychology because they've seen something either in their own behavior or their family that this interests them, sometimes not happy things. But I decided even in high school, and part of it is I loved science, but I also loved kind of literature and, had, you know, ran the literary magazine, all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, what can you do that is science and you can get into these deep human issues? Uh, psychology. Maybe it was this thing called psychology because I, I hadn't done anything other than read popular literature. Maslow was my hero at the time. I still kind of think well of him. Peak experiences and all that. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you, you know this uh, podcast focuses on to just very practical things of how we live in ways that are more successful. And uh, I've never wavered. I'm glad I made the choice because it turns out it's right. You can yeah. put the hardest known science filter on it if you want. And it's very practical when you go home and you kiss your wife and hug your kids. It's in the room. Yeah, awesome. So there's there's a lot of different areas that we can jump into. Um, I mean, when it especially when we're, we're talking about something such as acceptance and commitment therapy, sure. or you know the underlying like language processes there that you studied sure. a ton. Um, so today's topic that we want to jump into was. Uh, largely known as like grit, right? Yeah. Um, Perseverance in a yeah. way. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So one one angle I like to take on here is just kind of look at popular resources that are out there. So Psychology Today, YouTube, and those sort of things. TED Talk. The one that was like up top um, and everywhere was Angela Duckworth's book that came out in 2016 um, titled Grit. Sure. And she kind of talks about it as just passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can start there. Like, is that something that we are okay with? Like, is that, is that a acceptable general definition, I guess? Yeah, it'll work. I mean, this kind of perseverance for long-term goals, things that you really care about, but that have an arc take a while. It isn't something you can just do a one and done. And that passion part is that there's a deep connection to those purposes. And the angle that I would bring to it is that we've been able to pull at its joints some of the things that interfere with that. And what do you do with those things? You know, what gets in the way of these longer term things you really care about that you want to produce in your life? And whatever that might be, whether it's a successful podcast or being able to be a competitive athlete, build a business, maintain a relationship, raise kids you know, go to school, get a degree. I mean, these things require this kind of gritty persistence. And a lot of the things that are out in the culture that tell you, here's how you do it, and it turns out that's not right. Yeah. And so um, some of it's counterintuitive. Some of the things we've discovered in our research and be able to put into our practice isn't things that your grandmother would tell you or things you just read in the newspaper. It requires some uh, deeper dive into what fosters and gets in the way of... uh, creating kind of a the ability to get what you really want when that takes a long time takes a lot of work is hard and uh, requires persistence requires yeah. grit. okay so if, what's the model you kind of look at it at from and then what are some of those things that uh 
the, I guess the research hasn't quite lined up with, right? Or you're learning different things. Yeah. Like, let's just kind of explore that wherever. Well, I think most people, if they were just to talk about it and think, say, what are in their um, family and their background with this common sense and you know, what we would do, it would probably get kind of a, a willpower lecture or some, the kind of some sort of wagging finger about how you have to really try hard. You really have to keep pushing, keep trying, never give up, uh, things like that, which really about to advice about persistence. But, you know, if you dig a little deeper, and some of it's in Duckworth's work and what's in there, but there's some features I think we can bring to it. It's the depth of the connection to meaning and purpose that will carry you through on the one hand. And I think also, on the other hand, not doing things that get in the way. There's a lot of things that, uh, you know, your grandmother might tell you to do or that you're just your mind tells you to do that if you follow it, it's going to create problems for you. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you're working with grit with an athlete. A very common thing is to focus on the form that they have to show and persist in it, but also to, you know, keep their mind off things that distract and interfere, etc. That's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. And there's not very good evidence of it, especially if you look long, long term. And why? Because when you try to keep your mind off something deliberately, it means you have to mind your, remind yourself as to whether or not you're no longer minding it, which means you just minded it again. So you get these loops within loops, this crazy way that our, our minds work, where if I'm focusing on distraction, let's say, I have a split now. I have the disc part. Don't focus on this. That's the disc part traction. It's just like traction on tires, right? It's what pulls you towards things. Disc meaning don't do it. So don't have traction towards that. Yeah, but if you're really thinking about that a lot, then you're thinking about that. And so how do we instead put something that's more like attraction? I mean, what do you focus on that might actually be able to capture and pull you across these barriers that you're going to run into if you have any kind of passion and purpose in your life? That's counterintuitive. And grandma probably doesn't know about that. And a lot of the coaches don't know about that. And so, etc. cetera, uh, you know, you look at places where people need grit. It's easy to do it in such a way that you actually have, you're working against your own interests in the name of fostering your interests, which really, that just sucks. That's not where you want to be. And uh, we have some ways of helping people out of that conundrum, out of that, these kind of feedback loops that they get in your way. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that a lot a lot of what you said already is that there's not really going to be a fine distinction between what is easy and what takes grit. That's going to be different for right. each person. And that uh grit might it might mean persevering in the face of something that's it's it's difficult, you know, it's it's lifting something that's really heavy, it's pushing yourself physically to a point that um is it's difficult to overcome and in that moment and we actually did an episode on on willpower where we talked about sure. in the in the instance what you're trying to overcome is the the desire the motivation to get out of this sure. like let's make this and make it end but at the same time there are things that get in the way that aren't necessarily pushing yourself physically but that when you get in your own way about things um and I like to always share personal examples on here because I, it, it's fun and embarrassing and confronting. <laughs> and, and so, for example, you know, I, I'm one of those people where it's like the grass is always greener. And when, right. if, even when I'm doing the thing that I want to be doing, I'm thinking about, ah, I wish I was, I, I can't wait till this is done so I can be on to the next thing right. that I want to be doing. And there's just, there's always that. And simply being able to recognize how I make the, the choices and also just the way that I, I think about those things in the moment 
um, it shifts how, how I interact with those experiences that I have. And so I think just to piggyback off of what you've been saying, that there's a parallel there in that grit and this perseverance refers to identifying where barriers like that exist that are where we kind of our own thoughts and our own language that just get in our way of us being able to do the things that we really want to do and persevere in the face of the motivation to do other things. The big ones that get in the way are thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations, or the stories that you tell about yourself and others. I mean, those are the the big ones. So your self-concept doesn't fit. Uh, for example, or you kind of view yourself as a victim or you view yourself as, you know, deep down, I'm really not ready to do this, etc. You sort of buy into a story. That's one. But another is that as you move ahead, it's emotionally hard. Uh, you know, you have thoughts of failure. Uh, you can be physically hard in terms of, you know, uh, just your bodily sensations involved in doing hard things. And so what do you do when part of you is saying no? There's something aversive in there, difficult, challenging, emotionally, cognitively, or in terms of self uh, uh, story and self-concept. And there, a lot of the advice is wrong. I mean, a lot of the things that we're told to do, if you have a negative self-concept, just believe in yourself and adopt a positive one. The problem is, is if you're trying to trick yourself, then you're kind of aware of the fact that you have two stories going on here, and then your mind's torturing you with all kinds of evidence that you're basically lying to yourself, you're a fraud, you're fooling people. Uh, You know, it's just one of many examples where you end up, instead of keeping your eye on the prize, you're keeping your eye on the war within, and when it's won, then you can sort of get back to what you actually have to do here. You know, that's exhausting and counterproductive. Uh, so uh, the message that I would want to focus on is, is how do we connect with our passion and purpose in a way that will carry us forward? But then how do we also deal with these barriers that come up and uh, deal with it in a way that's more open and flexible and allows us to move quickly, not through them, not instead of them, not over them, not around them, but with them. It's very much like picking something up and carrying it with you. I mean, after all, your thoughts, your feelings, your memories are in you. They're not bigger than you. That's just an illusion of mind that there's something out there that can stop you. They're not a physical barrier. You know, figure out a way to put them in the pocket, put them in the wallet, and carry them with you. I mean, you don't have to make them go away. You don't have to change them. You, you have to relate to them in a way that they're no longer functioning as barriers. If I had a physical object in front of me, okay, I might need to figure out how to get over, under, around, and through. But my memories aren't like that. They're going to go with me. My emotions aren't like that. They're going to go with me. So our own language and the advice that's in the culture actually is, is, is wrong and sometimes deeply wrong. And we would all know that. Everyone would know that. Except for the immediate effect of following that advice is often positive. For example, if you are worried about something and you try to distract yourself, it's only over the long term that you'll get into these self-amplifying loops of, uh, you know, a Verizon commercial that won't end. You know, am I, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? And you're never there yet. You don't have the confidence. You don't have the self-esteem, you know, whatever you think you have to have. But immediate effect is positive. If I'm, I'm you know, I'm good enough, you know, for a few minutes or maybe a few hours or if I instead of doing the scary thing I'll do this other thing well for a little while I've so everything we know about how the human mind works is now is more impactful than then short sure. you know behaviorist short-term contingencies right so uh, we get drawn in like a fish getting drawn into a fish trap into doing things that don't don't work 
and then when they don't work long run but they do work short term to do more of them so we're doing more and more and more and more of what doesn't work and meanwhile we're surprised at why we can't lose weight we can't stick to that exercise program we can't persist through that business challenge and it's because we're fighting ourselves instead of uh, connecting with that sense of meaning and purpose that you know can move mountains if we're able to bring together you know your, your your whole self and community people who share your vision together to make it happen so we kind of hid this from the listeners up front at least if they didn't know already um you have <laughs> an immense amount of literature behind you um yeah. and a really cool movement and i've uh, we were talking before the podcast about how it's it's not just one person right it's this whole community and yeah. i think you you've actually done a really cool job and at the end we'll we'll talk about what that community is maybe and where people can go but i think this is relevant so I mean, over 600 scientific articles, uh, 44 books, like there's an immense amount of literature here. Like, what are you guys finding for those people that are like struggling in the moment and trying to find like that are looking for these strategies? Like, what are you guys finding that actually works now? Like what, where, well, where's, what's where exciting we're pointing? and really cool about what we're doing is, you know, the work that we're doing on acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT and the underlying basic work. You know, initially a lot of it was applied to things like, you know, mental health problems, substance use, et cetera. But the principles really came down to uh, how to have a mind and, and not get in your own way. I mean, it's how to sort of be human and be able to remember and think and evaluate and compare all those things that we can do so wonderfully, uh, you know, that are linked to things like problem solving, creativity and all the rest, but also can easily create our life as a problem to be solved and put on hold until our problems are solved and then we can start living and, you know and then the clock becomes a mockery you know because you realize you're not living and, and so forth turns out a lot of these things that feel like iron bars that you know cage us in are like printed on rice paper they're really not very heavy and thick once you see the i want to say the trick but when you once you see the illusion of mind I mean, it, it's kind of like the uh, Wizard of Oz with the big scary head, you know, talking to you and telling you to go get the the broomstick from the Wicked Witch of the West, and then you're what was it East anyway? One of the <laughs> or before you're able to move forward, and then the curtain gets pulled aside, and some frumpy little guy talking into a microphone, and uh, not quite as serious. Uh, don't pay attention to that guy behind the curtain; just doesn't have the same impact as a big scary head. And so when you pop the illusion of how the mind gets in your way, how the rules that you're adopting inside your head, the, head, the talk that you're doing, you're, you're not very far away from doing something that's really fundamentally different. Not that it's not a panacea. It's not you know, you know, choirs aren't going to sing immediately, but you immediately head in a different direction. So if I can give you just one example, Let, take an example of a really really difficult thought. If somebody listening to us has one where you know there's kind of a thought that you buy into that gets in the way of you doing something you know like you really want to make something happen in business but it's hard or in a relationship but you'd have to step into a space that's difficult and if you can put it into words you know like put it into a sentence sing that thought and see what happens say it in the voice of your least favorite politician see what happens or in Donald Duck might work Distill it down to a single word. Say it over and over again. I have a TEDx talk that's up if people want to see it. I walk through about 10 methods 
for everything from giving your mind a name to but it's not self-ridicule it's a matter of kind of distancing of being able to see your thoughts the way you might look at your hand as opposed to seeing your thoughts the way you, it might look if your hand was covering your eyes if your hands covering your eyes you're not seeing your hand you're just seeing nothing and that's kind of what we do with our thoughts we let them get up so close to us that you know to go back to that other metaphor, I know I'm mixing them now, but the, yeah. the dictator within is like the, the Wizard of Oz, scary uh, floating head. You know, I've got people emailing me from around the world who have let the words within dictate to them. And some of these simple methods, just opening up a little crack, you know, like opening a window and then fresh air can get in, just a little crack, just a little enough that there's a human being in there who has a choice and is not just run on automatic pilot by whatever programs are kind of natural verbal conditioning inside her head. And it become transformational in the sense that you now are in a different direction. You can you realize that I can take that thought with me and do this scary thing with this um, girl I want to ask out or do this scary thing with this business I'm trying to get started or whatever the case might be be and we've shown this in terms of task persistence that particular method is called diffusion it's a made-up word it means to not be so fused with a latin kind of root word that means poured together with the content of your mind instead of start looking at your mind the way you'd look at your hand if it was a few feet away from you you can see the thoughts but they're not dictating what else you can see they're not running you you know it could be something useful in that thought you know you haven't done your taxes oh okay thanks i need to work on that i mean sometimes thoughts are really helpful sometimes you know deep down there's something wrong with you yeah heard that done that doesn't help i understand where it came from sometimes you can even remember the the moments or even you'll hear things in your mother's voice your father's voice you know like programming sometimes you can feel like where it came from and it's fine to notice that but not to be run by it because then you're just uh, you're kind of running on an automatic pilot and you've got to pray for good programming well if we had that we wouldn't need help right they wouldn't be listening to this freaking podcast yeah because you'd yeah. already be doing every you know, everything you wanted to do well, that's not normal that's not what happens people need you know so these diffusion methods of sort of turning what looks like lemonade back to lemons and water and sugar you know kind of taking it apart so there's a little bit of choice when you're having thoughts like I'm not good enough or this is too hard or I should just go have a six pack or whatever the thing is, you know, not that hard to learn. And it gives you something to do that's powerful and useful other than just waiting for the thoughts to change or waiting for them to go away and make, waiting for them to stop or change their, their form. You, you'll wait the rest of your life for that. Yeah. So one thing, um, that I, I sometimes think about when having these discussions, talking about willpower and persevering through things that are difficult is making sure just that we we make the point very clear. We're not necessarily advocating that if there's something that's going wrong in your life, that you have to be able to p work through that and just deal with it. Like if you're being abused or if you are... Um, if you are having a terrible time at your job or if you are, there's something that is not in line with um, how you'd like your life to be going. That grit doesn't mean that we're, you know, well, we're, I think we're generally talking about grit as being able to persevere through something that is working in line with the value. Recognizing that it's it's not that when there's something that you really should not be experiencing and should is a term we can discuss later, but sure. it's one that it is, is absolutely not in line with the values and that 
in general, we could say people, this type of experience is not necessarily part of the human experience. It's yeah. not the part of the experience that we have to deal with things that are like traumatic and dangerous. And, uh, and that might be part of you know, someone's job might be really dangerous and, and might lead to things sure. that are traumatic. But just saying that grit doesn't mean that you just need to buck up and whatever terrible thing you're dealing with, just deal with it. But in the instances where you're dealing with something that is in line with what you'd like your life to be and what your values are and what your goals are, that that's where it's in, that there is something to be gained from being able to look at how your language plays a role in that. And just to yeah. make a comment on well, there's you know persistence and and this the word grit can pull for this thing of persisting in the form that you have currently, and and it really doubles down if you know that my work is called acceptance and commitment therapy because that acceptance works and sounds like and furthermore you should just accept your lot. Mm-hmm. And then persisted the form really, which is, you know, almost toxic, that combination. When the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act was first uh, kind of hit the world uh, you know, in a way that was sort of on the radar screen of some people in the culture. That was when it was written up in Time, 2006, in a five-page story. My little 15 minutes of fame with a nice little two-page picture that I sent to my mother of my face in Time magazine. That was really cool. Yeah. But, uh, you know immediately I got pushback from from people who were saying you're just telling the downtrodden to accept their lot and you know but this idea of persistence and acceptance kind of as I say almost adds to it is not that what you're persisting with is sort of keeping the faith with yourself that what you care about matters and that going in that direction matters what you're accepting is to receive the original sense of the word acceptance is it comes from a latin word word that means to receive as if to receive a gift, which is still in English, but barely. Like here, when you give a gift to somebody, would you accept this? We say that to the people. We don't mean here, would you tolerate this? <laughs> right. Here, would you be resigned to this when you give a gift? You don't mean that. You mean, you know, would you willingly take this in as a gift that I'm giving you? You know, and inside, a lot of this chatter is the gift of our history. There's wisdom inside it, even the painful experience we've learned about. You ask this question, why are you a psychologist? A lot of people have had painful family histories and so forth, and they know something about trauma. They've seen mental illness. They know something about suffering. That's why they want to step up to it. Well, that's a gift. It's a gift. It's where your passion comes from. I bet you most people, if you think deeply about your passion, if you flip it over, it's also a place that you know how to hurt. You know, if you're passionate about relationships, you probably know something about being wounded in relationships. If love is important to you, you probably know something about loss. You know, so there's this kind of rich soup, you know, in there. Of I, I think persistence is more like keeping the faith with yourself. And it, a closer word would be almost something like faith. And, and not, not meaning religious faith, but, but faith and this kind of leap of wholeness. And it, it's right in there in the, some of the words that people would say when they're talking about you know, grit. They'd say words like confidence. Well, the fidence part is a Latin word that means faith. Oh, That's what that. it means. Yeah. Fide is faith. It's the same root as the word faith. Okay? So, and most people think that you're going to get confidence by attacking your feelings of insecurity, which is the least with faith thing you could do. If you want to have faith with yourself, how about having faith with the fact that sometimes you have self-doubt? Sometimes you're not sure. Sometimes you have different thoughts. Open up to that. Put it in a wallet. Carry with you. That's a pretty self-faithful thing to do, right? So confidence, the behavior, con means with, right? With faith in yourself is to persist in passion what you really care about. Not by form, but by this place that I care. 
matters and I can bring it into the world, bring it into my life, even when it's difficult. So take something like an abusive relationship. You know, what people want are committed, loving, loyal relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship at some point, you're going to find that in a different form if you're going to find it at all. That means escaping from the abusive relationship. And that takes grit. That's hard. Yeah. Your mind screams at you. You feel like you're going to be completely alone. No one's ever going to love you again. The person might be dangerous. There's all kinds of things in there, right? Plus, you probably love the person. You're going to have to walk away anyway. Why? Because what you care about matters. Because your life matters. What your passion is matters. That's a kind of persistence that's with faith in yourself. It's a kind of confidence, right, that I can you know, put myself into a healthy relationship and that people will care to be with me and so forth, even if my mind's telling me that uh, maybe even what an abusive spouse is saying, which is nobody will ever love you. You know, you're not worth anything without me or whatever the abusive pattern might be. And I was mentioning the, the early flowering of interest in ACT when we were getting, I was really buoyed up by the fact that one of the very first randomized trials of ACT was putting ACT into a work environment that was really tough. It was a call center at a bank. Mm -hmm. And the comparison condition was a behavioral training program that taught people to reduce stressors in their work environment by changing the structure of the environment itself, mm -hmm. right? And it did pretty well at raising people's willingness to change the environment. Unfortunately, it didn't lower stress very much. What ACT did is it lowered stress, was helpful with mental health, and people started stepping up and changing their work environment. Nice. So you'd say, okay, so this is not accept your lot. This is accept your feelings and change your lot. Mm -hmm. You know, go to the foreman, change the environment, you know, et cetera. Well, why do we play it small? Why do we play our lives small? And I think it's very often because we have these things within that are telling us that we have to play it small. It's hard emotionally to step forward and to play our life big. And so it's the same gritty message of you matter, your passion matters, but also bring all of the stuff inside you along with for that journey. Don't be waiting for that mess to be cleaned up and for you to have 100% clear emotions, thoughts, memories, and sensations before you can do anything because you're going to wait for the rest of your life. Meanwhile, there's things to change in your life, and that might mean leaving a relationship. That might mean confronting a boss. That might mean leaving a job. That's a kind of persistence, too. That's a kind of gritty move, too. That doesn't mean just keep doing the behavior. It means keep caring about the uh, the values that you bring to that behavior. Super well said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, another one I had is maybe a little bit smaller of a question, but just where where does this come from? There, there are people who seem to already sort of come prepackaged in a way yeah. with their ability to, to make those sorts of calls and stuff. And, you know, we know that that is not necessary, that your genes don't code for grit. No, you know, that's not a thing that happens. <laughs> not likely. No. <laughs> um, but so then looking at where does this come from? Well, those people who seem to be really good at it. And is this something that people seem to be really bad at it? Is that something that they can change about themselves? It is something you can change, you can measure it, you can show, you change the process, change the outcome. It's one of the things that I'm most excited about and proud about, about the ACT work, is that inside these about 2,000 studies on the basic and applied model and the technology, a couple hundred on these core processes and showing that you can, you can target them and change them. You know, in terms of the evolutionarily established thing, 
couple things to remember that. One is that genes are turned on and off by environment and behavior. So don't just be thinking because you've got your, your gene plate full, which you do. You get your 28,000, 25,000, whatever genes. You're not going to change them. Uh, that you're, you're kind of predetermined. No, because you're actively turning those things on and off. If you meditate for eight weeks, about 1,500 of your genes get reliably turned on and off in randomized controlled trials, mostly involved in, uh, in regulating uh, stress reactions. Well, that means every freaking cell in your body is now genetically different, even though it has the same genes because they're expressed or not expressed because environment and behavior does that. I mean, cells are systems for turning environment and behavior into biology. That's what they are. And there's, there's regulatory systems to do that. So that's one, one thing to say. But the other thing is people naturally get dealt not just by genes but also by culture and family history and so forth, a, a different deck of cards to play. Let's take, for example, some folks will associate aversive events that happen with other events more easily over longer time frames. You can show it at birth, jumping out of the womb, different as to whether or not aversive events. You actually get stuck with a diaper pin. Not that we still do pins with diapers, but to, oh, that shows how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some infants will, ah, and will associate that, whereas others, not so much. Well, that then predicts something. One of the things it predicts is higher levels of experiential avoidance. People who work hard to avoid uh, uh, painful emotions often are people who are dealt more painful emotions. Now that could be by early childhood trauma. It could be things that happen by experience. Some of it is by underlying biology. Some of us respond more to things like that. And so, But that doesn't mean it can't be changed, that you don't have ways of acquiring a, a greater openness to emotional difficulty and a little bit of distance that allows you to persist. Because it isn't that you have to subtract and eliminate the aversives. You have to persist through the aversives in a way that's not suppressive and doesn't blow up on you, where you're using kind of ways of coping or ways of being that are actually counterproductive in the long term. So if you can teach people, for example, these kind of emotional willingness and opening methods, people who have a biologically established high-strung, easily associated with aversives kind of uh, biology. And sometimes this is in families. Whole families are like this. Uh, and they're more prone to what? To anxiety disorders and substance abuse. You can show it because both of those things regulate these built-in negative arousal and negative emotional motivation patterns. But if I can teach you how to open up to that emotion and persist just for a little bit, you can get to some of the positive outcomes that are down along a different pathway of larger rewards, but a little delayed, and you have to walk through aversives to get there. Uh, so you, you take this kind of fence that's keeping people caged in based on their biological, but also family learning and other history, and instead now this thing's been pushed out, and you have like a bigger do domain, kind of a platform in which you can uh, learn and experience consequences that are farther away or more probabilistic or involve immediate emotional things or raise difficult thoughts or feelings or bodily sensations have less power to restrain, restrict, control. That's a kind of freedom inside your biology. And oh, by the way, actually it turns out some of those things will actually start up and down regulating the very genes that are producing the reaction. So, and that's been shown that in uh, the mindfulness studies I mentioned, but not just that, in animal models and in human models, both, that as you learn some of those uh, skills, your, your basic biology starts lining up 
to make it actually easier, not harder over time. So the cool message about that is some of these skills that we can learn, these psychological flexibility, we call them, skills. I mentioned the diffusion one, the acceptance one, but there's a handful of other ones. You start getting your history, your behavioral patterns, and even your underlying biology working for you instead of against you. And it gets easier, not harder. So that's kind of cool. It isn't something you have to slog on for the rest of your life, you know. It's something that actually will get easier as you build skills and being able to produce this kind of passionate, gritty uh, capacity for uh, persistence in the service of your values. Um, I, I wanted to, you've mentioned a lot about the, the research, and then I would like to talk about um, as like how to talk about this with respect to understanding it scientifically. Um, but I'd like to actually start that conversation by asking you about how well you've seen this, the work that you've done, and um, and and also the the, con the conceptual system that's built um, around that and with that and how that's developed as well. Have you seen that that maintains relatively well over cultures and different parts of the world, different languages and that sort of thing? It's an awesome question and a really important one because the last thing we frequently need is yet another uh, white male dominated take on uh, mental health you, you take the <laughs> or behavioral health you take yeah. some of the models that have been out there like this this western conception like you know they're creating all the psychiatric nosology cubby holes inside the the dsm the diagnostic and statistical manual of american psychiatric association well if you take that and you put it into other parts of the world everything gets worse everything Mental health gets worse, cultural fabric gets torn. And I'm not just saying that, you know, go look at the Vikram Patels of the world. You know, the guy in India was on the, the Time 100 list. He's a physician and psychiatrist, but he says the last thing we need is Western medicine coming in and telling people how to run their behavior. Because it, it just tears at these cultural wisdom that's sometimes far wiser. Now, what we found conversely, and there's a reason for it, the psychological flexibility model that's underneath the ACT work is built on very basic ideas about how learning works, these half a billion year old processes of contingency learning, operate in classical conditioning, you know, if people have taken their psychology 101 course, half a billion years old, how do we know that? All the organisms that evolved during the Cambrian period do it, none of them before do. So if you're a, a sponge or a, a jellyfish, you don't do it. If you're a spider, snake, worm, horse, you do do it. Well, okay. These learning systems are then kind of impacted by these more recent kind of language learning systems that are evolutionarily far more recent and uh, can get in the way of doing things that, for example, if you're taking something that associative learning or contingency learning makes hard, Learning on the basis of delayed consequences, especially if they're probabilistic, is hard. So it, it's an easy fit. Where do you have a hard time in your life? Where do you actually have a hard time doing what you need? Almost always there's things where the immediate benefits make you one way and the long-term benefits. It would be better to study now, but on the other hand, I could watch another Game of Thrones. You know, <laughs> You know, so it would be better to, you know, clean up that mess with my staff person. But on the other hand, I can do that next week. And, it, you know, so these short-term, long-term kind of things. Well, turns out that language sometimes can actually double down on that and make it worse. And, it, and that's something that's newer. What you and I are doing right now is not something that uh, dogs and cats are doing. We have pretty good evidence on that. 
It's probably only 200,000 years old, maybe 2 million years old. We know the chimpanzees don't do it. Uh, you know, you know that 12-month-old babies do. So we, and if you want to talk about it, we can talk about what the, what I mean by what they're doing. Um, well, back to the cultural issue. If what we're managing is how this evolutionarily recent thing of being able to talk, reason, think about things symbolically, problem solve, and these ancient processes interact, that ain't human culture. That it's human. But it's not something that should fundamentally be different in Japan versus China versus Africa. It turns out it isn't. We now have uh, randomized trials on the methods, but also studies on the processes in 27 different languages in literally almost every, well, in every continent other than, uh, I don't know anything in Antarctica, um, and in areas around the world that are defined all these different ways. We have act studies out of Africa. We have act studies out of China and Japan and all the rest. And we have these flexibility process studies. Bottom line is the relationship between psychological flexibility, the things I'm talking about now, between you know connecting with your passion to foster that gritty movement towards and knowing how to do something different with the barriers that show up that are based on the world within, thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations. The relationship between that and success and behavior, between mental health problems, substance use problems, behavioral health problems, being able to be a good athlete or to lose weight or something, is exactly the same in every culture we've looked at. The levels may differ from one culture to the other. Some cultures are more experientially avoidant than others, for example. But the relationship between these processes and outcomes is the same every place that we've looked. And it should be because, after all, just being able to talk is not a cultural issue. How you talk, and that, that produces some things. Like in Japan, we talk about we, they, not I, you. Uh, that produces some differences in the underlying psychology, and you, we can model that and put it into our methods. No, that because it's so basic, what we're chasing, uh, yes, culture matters. It matters on top of this. And uh, we're talking about things that are down at the level of something like Reward learning, reinforcement, that's not a cultural thing. Culture builds on that. That's the same that's true with these things like diffusion, acceptance, attention to the now values. What the values are, what the issues are, that'll change from culture to culture, but not that they matter. Uh, and so not to put words in your mouth, but just to sort of say what I was hearing and what you were saying, and you can correct me if this is wrong, um, or, or tell me if I'm right, <laughs> um, is that the the basic psychological processes that you're uh, sort of that the model that you use in understanding how to influence things like grit and perseverance and, and other things that are done in act yeah. all of those are part of the um the uh, the underlying psychological yes, experience exactly. of being human yes. and that the the race and culture those things don't affect what it means necessarily to be human and that the processes involved in how we do our language at the fundamental level of how it works. That's just that's just part of the human experience around the world. Yeah, yeah. and you, we build on that. And these other things matter. They matter deeply. And diversity issues and so forth are really critical. And sure. we've, we've done a lot of work in this area. But no, the deep message is we're human beings. Yeah. And all human beings share these basic psychological processes. And then culture and history and all of that religion and sexual orientation and gender and all those things build on that. And so you, 
you need to be mindful of those things, study those things, look at those things. But uh, fortunately, we've gone down to a level that's so basic. Uh, some of these core processes, how they're expressed will be different, but the core processes will be inside the different uh, cultures and communities. And, you know, there's something sweet about that. We're human beings. I mean, yeah. that, that's not something that we should feel as though minimizes the importance of gender and diversity and all that. It, it puts it in a context that actually allows us to do some healthy and healing work, which we really need. I think the whole world is looking around and saying, holy beans, you know, if we can't figure out how to deal with these differences between cultures and communities and politics and all the rest, we're, we could be in real trouble. Yeah. And actually ACT, the work, the organization came out of 9-11. So we've kind of, there's a lot of backstory to that, but we've been, you know, consciously trying to create a community that can step up to these challenges of uh, conflicts between peoples and so forth and uh, building a psychology that might be more adequate to do that. Again, I want to say sort of my my understanding of this, and and then hear some of the words um, that uh, of wisdom that you'd definitely be able to share about the fact that uh, we use a lot of words when we say things like mind, and when we say things like think and emotions and stuff, and that at what you're up to, it seems like to me is that all of that because those are things that we know that we can experience and we have words for them and they're things that we can we look at human language and we can see how human language affects behavior both in how we talk to ourselves and how we talk to others and how our culture shapes the language that we use and and that sort of thing that what what you're up to um, and getting at things like perseverance and grit but it, as you mentioned goes far beyond any niche example like that um, is that we can account for all of that stuff. We know it's there. So there, there can be a science of it and you're, you're packaging it in such a way that we, we now have terms to, to apply to those processes and say, um, you know, this is, um, we see that this is how this works. And so if we can describe the way that it works and we can describe what the experience is, we can use that description as a tool now to do the good, uh, like uh, objective science that needs to happen so that we can understand how to describe it and communicate it and then to make meaningful change for people. Yeah, I think what you, if I can read it back to you and see if, if it uh, resonates with what you're saying. You know, so much of our cultural knowledge and wisdom is cast in terms of these private experiences that we have of thinking and reasoning and of feeling and remembering and sensing and so forth. And it's been hard for objective Western science to get in there and kind of figure out how to treat that in ways that actually ends up being really useful and connects deeply with people in their actual experience, doesn't minimize or dismiss or hand wave or about it. Oh, that's just this. No, no, it takes advantage. You know, it takes the complexity seriously. And, you know, at, at times, when as happened in psychology, is we've adopted terms that your grandmother could understand. They're just kind of lay terms, etc., and that could take you to the to a certain distance. But it there's a deeper understanding that we need to get to. Part of what we're trying to do is to really understand, for example, how does this process we're engaging in right now work? Where did it come from, and how does that impact us? And as you do that, then you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, because you can talk normally. Take something like the word mind. I don't mind the word mind. It's a great way of talking about the kind of repository of all these kind of skills of symbolic learning, relational learning, language and cognition, higher cognition that's in in the human experience where you're able to, uh, you know, talk about and interact with things that 
in this very dynamic relational way. Um, and that, you know, collection of all these different rules, ideas, thoughts, evaluations, comparisons, predictions, and so forth, mind is a pretty good name for that. But if I just say, oh, you have to change your mind. Uh, th thank you very much, dude. Uh, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Oh, just think something differently. Uh, well, you know, that's been looked at quite a lot. And in fact, we went through a wave in psychotherapy. I mean, I'm part of the cognitive behavior therapy wing to a degree mm -hmm. where there was way too much of detect, challenge, dispute, and change being applied to difficult thoughts. You know, 25 years into the tradition, whoops, turns out that's not why the methods work. You know, that's a little harsh to say, and I'm, I'm part of that tradition, but uh, you no, know, it turned out it was much more in line with the kind of thing I'm talking about is that, yeah, thoughts are important, but uh, you have to be really careful about detect, challenge, dispute, and change because a lot of that gets your, your attention focused on the wrong things. So we need a deep understanding about how the mind works that connects with things you can actually do, things that are outside, not just, oh, the brain made me do it or, oh, my genes made me do it, but something I can do differently that changes how those things function in my life. And that's what we're doing with ACT, but it turns out underneath it, there's this thing called relational frame theory. We've spent, you know, 35 years trying to develop a relatively adequate analysis of higher cognition and language. And we have an, an answer that's new on the planet. Uh, you know, associative learning, which is most people know, and what's in the major cognitive science, that's what you're going to read about in the magazines, you're going to read about the mind, is what we've been doing for 300 years. I think it's mostly wrong, and uh, we have a different take on it. It's a little difficult to tell that story fully, but the more important thing is, is a different take that tells you very concretely, here are some things you can change in person's life by talking by giving them methods. I gave you some examples that are counterintuitive and are helpful. They're known to be helpful by Western science tests of them and many of them. So we're going to figure it out. And I say the we is, I mean, just means science. I mean, psychological science. Right. But I'm also saying that the behavioral wing that I'm part of, the contextual functional wing, has, uh, you know, new life uh, there in the form of relational learning. I don't know if it would fit the podcast, but I'm going to say the words just to say them that, you know, the, here's the thing we really learned that's different, is the human mind is not built on association, it's built on relations, and relations are something you learn to do. So another way to think about it, your mind is more like a fractal that has to do with a family than it is a Tinker Toy set, or a Lincoln Log set, or a Lego block set, I'm dating myself to talk about <laughs> Tinker Toys, but it's... Oh, here's another way to say it. A uh, person walks into a, a party, uh, shakes a few people's hands, leave. Turns out they had a disease. They come in and say, hey, this is a contagious disease. Whose hand did he shake? That's the current model of the mind. That's the way we're trying to make it work. What's connected, what looks similar. Here, here's something that's a little different. You're throwing a party. You want to make sure that the seating arrangements lead to really good social interactions. And you find out that somebody's coming who's a gay and a Trump supporter. Okay. Where are you going to seat him? You know, and oh, by the way, really, really, really doesn't like uh, fundamentalist Christian ideas. Pick your thing. It'll change your whole seating map. So the mind is like that. It's this very 
active dynamic thing where in a in a large event like that you would know how everybody's likely to relate to everybody else a big family event you all even know how they're related it's very dynamic and when you put something in it changes everything uh, so we know how to think relationally not just associatively it isn't just like chalk on one hand gets on the other like germs and a person who's using that first metaphor i was using or it isn't just that oh you know i had a bad experience with uh you know this bottle so something that looks similar is going to frighten me so formal similarity what goes together by time is not how the mind works it works by something more like a family picture and that will include formal similarity but it's not a substitute if you're looking at a big picture of a family you couldn't tell by looking at that picture who's related you might say oh okay well this this, this person's black and that person's white yeah but they might be married uh but, but this person's male and that, they, they might be married too jack might be married to george oh but this person's young this person yeah but the young person could be the aunt of the person who's older i mean it's like that it isn't easily well the people who live together they could be distant cousins the people who live in the other end of the country could be in a long distance marriage so you know it's like that relationships aren't defined just by what they look like or where they are or time or appearance they're defined by this dynamic process of you know applying a frame of relationships this is related to that like when you've learned that somebody is married to somebody or that they're a Trump supporter, or, oh, by the way, they're gay, or, by the way, they don't get along with the fundamentalist Christians. Uh, that The whole mind is like that. And when you know that, you can do a lot of cool things. You can mess around with things that change how the mind works when it's working against you, like the example is using of uh, singing your difficult thoughts. But you can also think about how to sort of put things in there that change how the mind when you want to work it towards you like your definition that you use of uh, passion and persistence how do we connect with our passion i can bring passion into the room and when i've done that it's like inviting a guest to that family dinner that's changed everything like a really charismatic person who suddenly the whole party's focused on that person you can do that you can put things in your mind that are like that because they're that important to you they're that central and so you know the commitment part of acceptance and commitment therapy is how to do that uh, so you open up to the difficulties and find a way to move with them but then you connect with that uh, purpose and passion and find a way to make that real it's a lot easier when you know how the mind works to do that and, and trying to uh you started to tie it back to uh, a lot more of the discussion about the grit and perseverance and one thing I've known some people um, in my life who have the, the the sort of approach to dealing with things where it's like to get through this, I need to be angry and like yeah. you have to have a winning personality a mentality. Like it's about the, I got to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat down the opposition and I'm going to be angry about it. Um, could you speak to that as being necessary and or sufficient um, of part of the process of, of the perseverance and the grit? Yeah, people do do that. But, you know, if you actually look at the health outcomes of that, good luck, because there's some pretty good evidence that that's going to have a harmful effect on your physical health. If You know, remember that old type A, type B personality yeah. stuff? Yeah. That sure. turned out to be mostly not quite right, but there's a piece of it that's turned out to be pretty good, which is this kind of suppressed anger, uh, you know, that core that, often people use and frankly let's be honest more males than females 
not oh, just males, but it's more males than females. Yeah, but they're dying of heart disease earlier, and some of it has to do with that. So, you know, you can push down the accelerator and the brake at the same time, but the car's not going to like it. You can pump all that anger into the room to try to get something going motivation-wise, but if you're just exploding on people, A, your social fabric's going to fall apart, your, your workers are going to quit, your, your partners don't want to work with you anymore, and so that's not going to work. So where are you going to do it? You're going to push down the accelerator, push down the brake. I'll get anger in the room to move me, but I'll try to break it so that I don't, you know, bust up the china shop with my bullish behavior. Where is that going to go? It's going to go into your poor physical health soon enough and poor mental health as well. So you have to be careful. But the other part of it is it's so much unnecessary. Everything that we know about motivation says that positive motivation, if you can do it, has longer persistence, has broader application, and has kind of a softer effect on us. We're more creative in working how to get our positives. And it's too many cheat sheets ways and unhealthy ways of working our negatives. When you're using a lot of aversive motivation, you're producing side effects you don't want. Plus, you may find shortcuts to fulfill that motivation. You know, I'll give you an example. I would imagine that a person who's really trying to build a business environment through uh, anger is going to be very demanding of their coworkers in ways that are reversive. Would you get behavior that way? Yeah, you'll get behavior. But you'll get avoidance behavior. You'll get people lying to you. You're going to get uh, a lot of things that will blow up. You want an example? Enron. Enron, the bottom fifth of the workers were shamed systematically. Wow. They had a name for them. Yeah. And, and, you had, and it was a public shaming. If you were in the bottom fifth, there would actually be a ceremony. It's like something out of some sort of nightmare sci-fi thing yeah. where you would be shamed. And it was built on this kind of uh, cheesy, not really true evolutionary account. You know, he was a big fan of Dawkins, of blocking on his name, you know, the guy, what's his name? Anyway, yeah. the, the guy, the Enron guy. Um, Went to jail. Uh, <laughs> yeah, should have. Uh, you know, and this survival of the fittest kind of dog eat dog thing. You know, well, why did they fail? They failed because when you did that to workers, they started lying. Yeah, I don't know where it's I heard this. I heard this in the last like twenty four hours. I mean, it had to have been when I was reading, you know, reading up on grit and such. Um, you know, yeah, and he paid actually, the cost for that kind of verse of uh, uh, motivation actually, by losing his company. Yeah, and, and they like, actually they actually fired people that way too. They took out the lowest yeah. whoever was in the lowest percentage was fired at the end of the year or whatever. Yeah, what would happen is the shaming you would lose your job. Mm -hmm. That would be announced publicly. You mm -hmm. had to be there for it. You had to actually be there in oh. the room while they're saying you're stripped of that. And if somebody else would take you, you could keep your job. Otherwise, you're gone. Yeah. So you had to go around and like beg. You know, what an unpleasant work environment. Yeah. No, I mean, golly, yeah, you know, yeah. can you be any more stupid? <laughs> That's crazy. But you know, if people buy into a vision of a company, I'll give you an example: B Corps. You know, you can organize your companies sometimes around values that are more than profit. People don't realize that most of our laws don't allow that. Yeah. You know, you're, if you're on the board, you have to only care about profit unless you're structured properly, where you can also care about the environment, worker health, things like that. B Corps can do that. We have provisions in the law that allow us to do that. Well, we've done studies on what 
predicts success in that environment. And it's things that have to do with positive motivation, perspective taking on others, hearing the voices of others. You can see it in things like more diverse companies do better. They do especially better in downturns. You know, uh, companies that have uh, women, not just men, ones that have different ethnicities. I mean, part of the the story here that's inside some of the things that you see around issues of diversity and so forth isn't just violins playing and sweet flowers and so forth. It's dollars and cents. I mean, figuring out a way to have more diverse ideas in the room and being able to listen to those. You know, we have a kind of a a false idea in there that this group think idea, you know, that once you start functioning as a group, you're going to be really stupid because we're all going to agree. It's mostly not true based on some methodological issues I could walk through, but uh, mostly if we're in community with others in a positive way, we're going to be able to persist, we're going to be able to change things better, and are you going to want to go to a work environment that's like Enron, or you want to come with one where you're treated with respect, your views are treated with respect, you're in a partnership, and it's a po- there's a positive motivation that isn't just about you know escaping being fired it's about accomplishing something that matters in the world and so these issues of values come right back in values-based organizations values-based businesses do better Uh, so over and over again i think it's the same message i'd be careful about uh, the the person who tells you that they're going to motivate themselves with anger yeah look more broadly see what happens to their relationships to their physical health and see if they really can pull that off my guess is no Something else that you were speaking to in that sort of quick fix, a metaphor I was thinking of was um, going back to the idea of athleticism of like, oh, I'm going to, if I take this injection of this thing that's going to give me like, let's say just, I don't even know what what drug this would be. Let's say speed. I don't know if that would do it, but let's pretend it's speed. I'm going to get this injection really quick. That's going to get me over the hurdle (laughs) this one time. Like that's going to push me to be able to accomplish something kind of amazing right in this moment. And now I have a major health concern, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, and so like that's it's almost the opposite of perseverance in the sense that in the long run, this will it can't work. Yeah. And it may be for but in the immediate effect is that it will work. As you were saying, it's like the short term solution. It, it doesn't make sense that some people would cling to that because right off the bat, it's effective pretty quickly. But it doesn't last. No, that's exactly right. And you use the example of athletes. This is a really good one because grit is especially applicable there. I was there in Rio and uh, you know watched these spectacular world-class athletes in multiple events down there. My wife's from Brazil. We took advantage of uh, of going. And I, you know, I saw people win gold medals who I know their cat, their coaches, and their uh, sports psychologists or act people. And I know what they're doing. I even know some of their names, but I don't have permission to say who they are who won those gold medals. But, you know, I also see, because I've done a little bit of work in sports and I've done some randomized trials of how to you know, do different things with sports-related things, maybe I can talk about that in a second, you know, that a lot of what the coaching that's out there is this, this you know, you know uh, no fear or go, kind of this uh, very tough, you know, get going or get gone thing that drives behavior out if you're a versive enough coach and so forth, but it also produces a lot of harm. Um, people crash and burn inside that. My wife uh, works at the counseling center at UNR and looks, sees what happens to the vacation. We've had s- sports coaches there who run their teams that way. Yeah, and then they go to the counseling center and they quit, you know, because it's just a really harsh environment in which to learn these skills. 
So Memphis mentioned this this randomized trial we, we ran recently. Emily uh, Leeming, who now works in the resilience program for the U.S. Army because of this dissertation in part, was doing work with CrossFit athletes. These guys are crazy. <laughs> I say I say these guys because it's men and women, but you know they are one tough group of folks. I've ever been around CrossFit athletes because you get to be competitive CrossFit. Man, I mean you are doing things that are so out there yeah. physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's insane. It's <laughs> insane. Well, and so we did a little uh, trial where we brought people in on a static hold task where they had to hold out a two pound weight at a 90 degree angle with a little ring that detects when you let your arm down. People think yeah, you, that's easy. Now you try it. You're mm. about 90 seconds in. You're, the burn is starting to get you. You know, eventually you know, your whole body starts shaking and stuff and because the amount of lactic acid is just pouring through your whole body by the static hold. And, uh, and they were very good at persisting. But here's what we did. We did well, in one case, we really pushed them to focus on the fo form, just keep going, kind of persist form focused. Very much, I think, like most coaches would do, you know, to do it right, focus on how to do it, keep going. Versus one where we kept coming back and asking about how willing are you to feel that feeling and persist. So we kind of focused on could you stay open to the feeling? And I had, had one also where you had a distraction condition where you had to think of anything else but that. Don't think of the pain. It's going to be painful, but don't let yourself think of the pain. Well, the willingness condition, which is much less in sports psychology, is barely in there, was head and shoulders better in being able to hold these static holds uh, with very competitive uh, athletes. So it tells me that even down at that level, that very basic ability to persist on athletic tasks and things like that, this idea of staying open, but also linking to this passion piece, you know, openness not as an end in and of itself, but as a, a way to help you persist in what your passion is. That's a combo that really can bring something new into things like your athletic work, but also nowadays we have dozens of randomized trials on things like exercise, but also losing weight, but also being able to study, dealing with procrastination, you know, stepping up to the challenges of physical disease and on and on it goes. So it's a generally useful skill of accept and move. Open up, direct your attention towards what brings meaning and purpose in your life, and you can learn that. Um, I was just going to ask you about things like pain management and, and weight loss. And when you're the things that aren't, uh, as we had sort of brought up earlier, they're not necessarily require physical endurance, right. but they require um, the overcoming the, the sort of motive, the motivation to not do it. Um, and things like weight loss is, is an important one when you're doing eating, um, changing eating habits can be very challenging. Um, and so for, for many people, Sure. And, and that was the, the question. So you, you actually addressed that. I was actually going to share a story really quick where, because um, I'm, I'm familiar with some of the work that you've done on this. Um, I have a, a almost debilitating fear of water uh, and being in water where there's creatures that live in there that want to eat me. <laughs> and so, um, and I was in, I was in Hawaii um, at the seven weeks ago at the time of this recording. And a lot of the activities in Hawaii revolve going out and snorkeling and being, you know, uh, one of them in particular was a, a night snorkeling with manta rays, wow. which sounded really cool if I could be in a glass case where I didn't have to be in the water and nowhere near these animals. And, uh, and I really had to 
the whole time I was there, basically walk out into the ocean and have the experience of like, I am experiencing the terror that I'm going to be eaten by a shark at any second. And I'm also going to be here with the, uh, what I'm doing and, uh, and not that and I wasn't trying to distract myself. Right. I was trying to just be with it yeah. um, as you were saying. And, uh, and the fact that I was able to go out, um, at, you know, nighttime of all places in the ocean, um, and do this night snorkeling with the manta rays, um, was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I was fortunate that I could be there. And, you know, although I was screaming as the manta ray is coming toward me, um, and is an inch <laughs> away from my face, um, I, I, you know, I also knew that I wasn't going to get hurt and I, I wasn't yeah. putting myself in real physical danger. Yeah. Um, but I was, uh, I was able to have that experience and that was because I, I could, uh, allow myself to be willing to experience sure. that emotion, that um, arousal in that condition and still um, and participate. There's just scores of studies showing that, that, that that combination is helpful, even with these very, very practical things like the ones that you uh, talked about of facing uh, our fears and moving ahead. Uh, and it turns out that you know that's some of how exposure works actually even traditional exposure methods yeah. that we thought really for the longest time we thought well the way they work is that the emotion goes away and then you're able to do it and that, that's not true actually it works more by changing your relationship to those uh, uh, emotions and so forth you mentioned pain management and there's an area where you know they, where they keep lists like the american psychological association or the uh, SAMHSA, of the substance abuse and mental health services administration of the uh, federal government uh, where they keep lists of evidence-based procedures act as listed as uh, you know uh, evidence-based for pain and probably with better uh, data on that than uh, almost any other area of the work because it's just so consistently helpful wow and that's awesome what's in the culture is so consistently unhelpful <laughs> if you go to your average physician or so forth you're going to come away with a script yeah. or Maybe with, um, you know, a mechanical device or if it continues enough with a pain pump, you know, maybe we'll actually do a surgical implant. Yeah, but you look at what's happening around the world. It's not by accident if you turn on your television screen and it's got commercials. Uh, they're not just doing commercials for the opiates. They're doing commercials for the thing they, oh, you have... Uh, OCI, you know, you know, opiate pr constipation producer or whatever the <laughs> thing is. And the, they're, they're actually selling the prescriptions for the constipation, for the opiates, for the chronic pain on mainstream. To do the math about this, how much money it takes to put a commercial on mainstream yeah. network TV. And there's an insane amount of opiates floating around. We all know that. Where'd that come from? It came from pain management. It came from the Centers for Disease Control saying that Tylenol is too dangerous, better to use opiates. Literally, that's what happened. Because the Tylenol can hurt your liver, etc. And somebody sold them on the idea that opiates were not that addictive. You know, and now we got, you know, people, you know, own major companies walking out on 4th Street, you know, trying to score opiates because the docs don't want to give it to them anymore. If you're in Reno, you know there's a person who owns a big automotive dealership who's now going to spend a lot of time in jail. Mm -hmm. You know, because that, why? Back operation. Yeah. And he became addicted because he was just, so, and I don't want to just wag a finger at the medical establishment, but I want to say, look, the cultural conversation about pain is off. That's how we got here. And, you know, chronic pain is at epidemic level in every country that treats pain itself as something that has to go away before you function. If you go to, and this is new, this is not, this is something we invented. 
the, the happy, happy, joy, joy, smiley face buttons of how humans are supposed to be is something that's a lot newer. So Scandinavia, for example, 15% of the gross domestic product is, is spent on chronic disability and most of it's chronic pain. Wow. They have the best worker laws in the world. But they also have, in their culture now, you're never supposed to be in pain. They even call burnout pain. So if you're upset with your job, you can be put on permanent disability. This is a crazy idea. If that happened to your grandparents and stuff, they would have quit farming. I mean, who wants to be behind there, you know, with your, you know, arthritis, you know, pushing the plow? And we've got this cattywampus deal that, you know, pain is something that's not part of the human experience. I don't want to minimize how hard it is for people in chronic pain. But can I give you an example? I've done oh, a little yeah, rant, but give me, give you an example that's very close. It's my closest I can get to a chronic pain experience which is I have tinnitus, really loud, medically diagnosed, it's huge, too much punk rock. I was a big, you know, sex pistols on on. I mean, I lived in Greensboro. <laughs> they, would, they would come from the smaller bands, some good ones, you know, Circle Jerks, X, et cetera. Had, we had to go from Atlanta, and we didn't know any of these bands, but I had to go from Atlanta to D.C. for their, for their, their uh, weekend gigs. So on Wednesdays in Greensboro, the vans pulled up, and these gigantic speakers and amps came out and you too could be in front of 170 decibels of mm-hmm. some screaming tatted up lunatic you know? <laughs> <laughs> like and i loved it yeah. i loved it yeah well now i'm almost 70 and guess what i have inside my head <laughs> you know? well so i've been working for 30 years on these methods you know and I, the, my ears start ringing, and they're ringing more, ringing more, ringing more. What am I going to do? Go to the audiologist, give me this cheesy habituation-based thing, put on noise makers in your house. You know, you habituate to the noise. It's getting worse, getting worse. And then I catch myself thinking, I should just shoot myself. If, if I just shoot myself, the noise will go away. And then the second voice comes, uh, dude, that's a suicidal thought. Uh, maybe you should apply your life's work to it. <laughs> it took me three years before it even occurred to me. Within one day, it was 50% handled. Within two days, 90% handled. Within one week, it was 100% handled. And this is eight years ago, seven years ago. We've now done randomized trials on it. Do my ears still ring? Yes, hugely. Except maybe not in this sense. In this second, in this moment, they're ringing. I think it's been two weeks since they've been ringing, except if I ever thought about it or looked, they'd be ringing. Of course they're ringing. They're ringing yeah. 24-7. What yeah. else are they going to do? Right. It's just I don't care, and you can't make me care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. So, you know, there's probably an air system in this room right now. Can we hear it? My ears are bad enough. I can't. But probably you sitting here haven't thought about the freaking air conditioner or heater in the background. Whether the fan, It's moving air. If you really detect it, you look, you could probably catch it. You don't because it's irrelevant. Pain, chronic pain could be like that. So can anxiety. So can I'm afraid of the manta rays. <laughs> it's a stimulus in your environment, right? It's a stimulus in your environment. It's in your internal environment. Do you have to give it importance? No, only if it's important. Is it important? No. Well, then don't give it importance. Well, then I won't think about it. No, 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 no. That's giving it importance. Right. 
you see there's a subtlety here it's a mm -hmm. trick because your mind doesn't know how to give it importance but you do you know how not to be interested you know how to be bored you know how to look at other things that are more important what your mind knows how to do is apply a problem-solving rule well when you do that in a subtractive way I need to get this to go away it makes it important bad idea so there's a little Zen of just being a whole human being who can care about what you care about and not care about what you don't care about. I don't care about my ears ringing. And you can't make me. Yeah. What happens? <laughs> it doesn't matter. And we now have taught people how to do it. We can measure it. By far the bigger predictor of tinnitus predicts suicide. I mean, at about the same level as depression, this is not a little baby bouncies issue. Wow. If it ever happens to you, you'll find that out. People with your iPhones, be careful about the volume settings because you're headed towards my life and you better know this skill or it's going to blow up on you someday when the ears give up. But it's not just that. When the joints give up, it's going to be painful. But it's not just that. When you get betrayed, relationships are going to be scary. But it's not just that. You know, when you've had physical uh, illness, you'll wonder whether or not you can keep going with some of the loss of function that will happen to you over time if you live long enough. So we need to put things in our culture, in our psychology, that help us have the kind of gritty persistence that's kind and self-compassionate, not the finger-wagging anger, you must do it or else. That uh, looks like grit, but it's something more like uh, aversive forcing and nobody wants to it's more like coercion i yeah. love it that's exactly what it is it's coercion and you are not a dog to be whipped even by you so uh, treat yourself with kindness but persistence matters passion matters living a life worth living matters i love that so where do people go next i guess so like you have this community right yeah, yeah. That, or uh, community ACBS. Tell us just a brief little bit about that real quick. Well, if you're a member of the public and you're not a professional, uh, you know, the place I suggest people go, there's some really great self-help kind of things. If you're interested in the act space, uh, get out of your mind, into your life. This is there, the happiness trap. There's other ones. Just go on Amazon, wherever you get your books. Google my name, acceptance and commitment therapy, whatever. Ultra cheap, 12 bucks. I will use the advice is skim it. Set it aside, skim it like in one day, don't do any of the exercises. If it speaks to you, go back and do it again. So now you kind of know where the overall story arc is, where we're going, because you've skimmed it. Do it slowly. If you hit an exercise that just you can't relate to, skip it, you can come back later. If you do that whole thing, it'll take you a month. To get help on Yahoo groups, there's a thing called Act for the Public. Just search for the words Act for the Public, free to join. If you want complete an anonymity, create a login name or whatever that gives you that. It's about 2,500 2, people reading act books and stuff, not just mine, but other people. Wonderful community. Some people hang out uh, for years. They've really become wise. I've interviewed some of these people. I've met them directly. They're just inside their suffering and then getting on top of it and kind of figuring out. They just are so awesome and they have so much wisdom, plus a whole bunch of act. You know, treatment developers and people like that hang out on the list and will contribute. Um, there are web-based resources for free and stuff that, that TEDx talks I've mentioned. You can look at Jonathan Bricker's, mine, there's some others. There's an ACT YouTube channel you can look at. If you go to stephenchayes.com, uh, you can kind of log in for my newsletter. I've got a freebie up right now of how to turn pain into purpose. Just a little eight-minute 
kind of rant and kind of some guidance about how to do that. Uh, if you're a professional, but professional doesn't have to mean a PhD in psychology. If you do anything where this would fit in your role, if you're a teacher or a coach or a nurse or an OT or a PT, you know, anything where it, you have sanctioned in your society to do that and this is relevant to it, uh, even just owning a business, whatever, um, uh, search for the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and consider joining. It takes like... Uh, we have our dues are values based, and uh, that means you pay what you think the work is worth to you, given your ability to afford it. I think our minimum is 13 bucks. A free journal comes with it, all kinds of really cool stuff. And then you can log into the website, which is a wiki site, and there's like a thousand pages. Anybody can put up anything. Don't put up porn. Uh, <laughs> and so far, nobody has. Anybody can put up anything, basically. And so it's kind of like old Jerusalem. I mean, the, the web developers for ACBS are constantly trying to rationalize it a little more, move pages around. But it's this vast resource of videos and tapes and protocols and books and for, for free, 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 free. Uh, you'd spend the rest of your life getting on top of all of it. And you can find something that applies to almost anything. Plus, there's a listserv. You can set it in your membership set settings. Uh, again, about 2,000 people, a little more out of the 8,000 or so members around the world who belong to ACBS. Look at the list culture. You can set your ability to join in your membership settings. Look, Spend a week, look at the culture, and get get it. We don't do flame wars. We just, you know, there's a certain respectful place that's there. And then post any question you got about anything having to do with the work, and you'll get multiple answers and really good ones from people around the world who are just supporting each other. So we kind of created a culture where we give things away and support each other. And it turns out, all boats rise, people still make money, they, it's, they still sell books, it's all fine, but not by this grabby thing of anointings and certifications and multiple levels and training. It's the, you know, one of the things trainers have to agree to, to become a recognized act trainer, which is done sort of more like a grant review, no money changes hands other than just processing the paperwork, 80 bucks, is you have to agree to not certify therapists and give away what you learn for low cost or no cost. Yes, you can charge for your workshops and all that, but we've got about what, almost 70 recognized trainers around the world. So we're trying to create a community where it's about making a difference for the people that we serve and not about you know, how to grab and become immortal and make a lot of money. Uh, nobody's mortal. The money goes away. But meanwhile, can we put things in the culture that help? That's what you're trying to do. I mean, can we put things out there in people's lives that help make a difference? And if that is of interest to you as a professional and something uh, that I've said somehow resonates, come hang out with us. Awesome. Yeah, if I was going to plug two other things, uh, practice is another yeah. option, right? Awesome, awesome. It's a really good training company in the U.S. I've, I've kind of thrown in with them just because they're a wholly owned subsidiary of New Harbinger Publications, which is a worker-owned, values-based organization. And I've been, I've been beat about the head and ears by lots of publishers. I owned a publishing company, sold it to New Harbinger, actually, mm -hmm. because I wanted to have a good home. It still exists, called Context Press. A lot of the early work on contextual behavioral ideas were done there, and it still goes on. And they created a training company called Praxis. So if you P-R-A-X-I-S-C-E-T, which is Continuing Education and Training, 
um, they offer workshops around the country on ACT, including things like boot camp ACT for behavior analysts. We're actually reaching out that way. Or uh, so some specialty kinds of things. Um, so that's a great mention. I'm glad you did, especially if you're a professional and you want to you know, actually acquire ACT skills with places to learn it. What was the other one? Uh, it was actually Context Press. You brought it up. Oh, that awesome. is like... Uh, myself and Abraham uh, and some other folks ran into that, mm, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And it was one of those things like, who has what money to buy which books that we don't have yet? And that's <laughs> been published under Context Press. Well, you know, it used and to then, be actually <laughs> in my house. And when students from UNR, especially in the behavior analysis or clinical room, would come over, I had to watch them because next thing you know, they're back in the book room. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I think I'll have this one. I said, dude, wait a minute. Come on. <laughs> Uh, let's make a deal and I'll sell it to you really cheap or something good. Yeah, context yeah. was something that uh, my ex, Linda, and myself created years and years ago and built out into probably 70 titles. And yeah. now, because it's continued on, it's probably 100 mm -hmm. titles that are context titles. Yeah, yeah, no, they were always reasonably priced. We were yeah. just grad student dollars and trying to yeah. trying to get whatever we could as fast as we could. The, I have uh, about a third of them myself. Yeah. Well, you know, and one of the things, I and mean, this is probably not in what the listeners care about, but just to say to you, in terms of podcasts and things like that, you know, you find these pivot points, these places where you can change the world. Uh, books and videos and podcasts and TED Talks are pivot points like that. And I just knew that early on and created, uh, along with Linda, a publishing company because it allowed us to get things out there that are a little on the edge and at the time. Uh, the late Ogden Lindsley, who's a student of B.F. Skinner, had this phrase where he said, you count your publications, but books count. And it's true, you can change people's minds with a book. So we've, we've been building the base for what I'm talking about by putting the things in place to help people kind of learn and participate and contribute and I'm really proud of the fact that there's way more books on ACT and RFT than anything I would ever do. And that's just awesome. But uh, it started with Context Press. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually the first time I contacted you was like an email about, hey, what was the role of Context Press? It was something that... And, uh, I probably said, I'm so glad you asked. You did, yeah. yeah <laughs> because nobody asked that. Uh -huh. Nobody understands. You know, They don't see the game. Yeah. They see the end result of the game. Mm -hmm. But there was all these little things put in place. And, you know, in the early days of context, yeah. I'm sending the books. Before, yeah. I'm putting the book orders in the spreadsheet. I'm a freaking PhD, right? I'm driving down to the post office, putting them in there, getting the things out of the post bo box, you know. I'm doing the layout. You know, it just was insane. At, at conferences, like the old Cal, Cal ABBA, the Association for Behavior Analysis in California, you know, who's behind in the booth? Steve Hayes is in the booth trying to sell you books, not books I've written. Sometimes, but well, you know, but that's how that change happened mm -hmm. because then people could read about this and these weird philosophical ideas, theoretical ideas, new wave. So it's kind of missed how it happened. People focus on what happened. And I liked the question uh, yeah. because people can use it. What you're doing right now with a podcast is an example. This is like a, a trim tab on a boat. You know, it's just this little freaking tab, but it makes the difference as to whether or not the boat sails this way or that way, mm -hmm. whether it planes or not. Yeah. It's a tiny little thing. Little trim tabs. You're doing trim tabs on the culture. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, those Thank are. You. Yeah, I remember yeah. distinctly getting back like a page and a half email. Like, <laughs> there's, like, I was probably it, excited. That somebody I'm, asked, and I'm pretty sure <laughs> if I remember, I think it was like three twenty-three in the morning. I think I remember yeah. when that, like, the timestamp when that came in. And I was like, "What's this guy doing up?" <laughs> like <laughs> replying in such length with how busy he is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I appreciate it. It's kind of like well, full email is another trim tab. Yeah. I have a rule. I respond to every email. It's an insane rule. It gets harder every year, but it matters because you know who knows who you're talking to yeah you may be talking to somebody who tend you know if i could tell a quick story i know but yeah, yeah. Uh, you know derbent barnes holmes is why there's a really vigorous uh, theory of language and cognition of the relational frame theory in the basic labs i'm just a clinician yeah i came up with a theory but i can't do enough studies dermot as a student sent out letters to a whole bunch of his heroes B.F. Skinner, me, and a bunch of people. He got replies from two people, B.F. Skinner and me. And he says it's part of why he picked up a mimeographed copy, I think, of the first RFT thing, read it on the train. And when he got off, uh, like three hours later, said, that's it, that's what I'm studying. Mm-hmm. So you don't know what you're doing when you respond to an email at three in the morning. Yeah. You're cha- you may be changing the world. Yeah. Your mind tells you you're wasting time because you've got all these important things to do. But you, if you put it, put it out there, you have a chance to... So I, I answer I've, my emails. Yeah, just <laughs> so you know, I've adopted a lot of that logic myself and what I do, and it keeps me going 16-hour days always. But I love yeah. them. I love like them. I, can, I wouldn't trade them for anything. So, um, Cool. Okay. I think that's kind of where we're, where we're at. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. Shared a lot of really... Um, fascinating um ideas and stories as well as some i think really important um wisdom and uh and uh, just sharing your expertise i think is enormously helpful and i'm glad that we could we could pull you in here out of i uh, know you've had a very busy weekend and uh and a very busy life but uh we love uh we're very very grateful to have the opportunity to to share what your your knowledge and everything with our listeners yeah thanks so much for your time no, it is an opportunity for me as well, and in part because you're asking really cool questions and having a good time. That's yeah. great. So thank you for the opportunity. Great. All right. Well, I think then that uh, wraps us up. Um, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. Signing off. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.